that. You know, brethren, last Sabbath I was home uh, sick, recovering from our latest African trip when the news flashed on my iPhone. Active shooter at the Allen Premium Outlet Mall. Fatalities and injuries. And that was it. I couldn't believe it. Surely they are mistaken. A false alarm. Maybe just a personal grudge or one person and the warning went out. Well, the reports that came in were worse than the initial news flash. Eight people killed, the shooter killed, and seven injured. And when you dig a bit deeper, you discover that the weapon that was used does considerable damage to the victims, not simply killing them, but severe damage. Then the news that children were killed, one only three years of age, was devastating. I have to admit that it's been very difficult to get it out of my head all week long. As if we needed more evidence of the evil in society, this should certainly seal the deal. Evil is everywhere and has now come to our own backyard. The Allen Mall, just three miles from the church office. It was a sad day and it's been a sad week. And that's very difficult, very difficult. We have to recognize that in the midst of the chaos of the world, we've come together to celebrate God's holy Sabbath day. It is a celebration. We've come together to celebrate the graduation of our FI students. It is a celebration. And we'll be celebrating, of course, the day of Pentecost shortly this month. It almost seems to be contradictory that in a world so evil, with so much going on that's so terrible and tragic, that God's people can gather on the Sabbath day. We can gather for special occasions, and we can worship the true God and praise the true God and sing songs to him as well. It is a difficulty that few people understand, but you and I have been given an understanding. Each year this is a great weekend, and this year is no exception. As a visitor, you have the opportunity to experience our congregation here in Dallas, to visit with the students and families and to attend the ceremony tomorrow morning. Our classes have been small the last couple of years, still recovering from the pandemic, but they've never lacked for enthusiasm. So today I want to speak to all of you, but especially to our students. I want them to reflect on what they've accomplished here at Foundation Institute. In nine months, each of our students has received a basic biblical education which cannot be found anywhere else, not in our most prestigious institutions, a Harvard, a Baylor, a Stanford, a Brown, a Princeton. It isn't that these others don't teach religion, because they do. For example, Harvard has a prestigious divinity school, Harvard Divinity School, recognized worldwide. Though religion has been part of the college since it began in 1636 at Harvard, it was only in 1816 that they formed the Divinity School. The Divinity School is found just off the Harvard campus. It's in an old cathedral, as I said, a couple of blocks off the campus. They have a library there. They have classrooms there. And they teach individuals the Bible. It's quite interesting. Harvard has, the Divinity School has one of the largest and most complete theological libraries in the world. Anyone who wants to talk about religion or teach religion or understand religion or the Bible can find it right there.
It's very interesting to me. To enter the Divinity School, you need an SAT higher than 1480 and better off 1520 as a minimum to get in. Perfect SAT score is 1600. The average college freshman in the United States has a score of 1060. Could not enter Harvard Divinity School. It's prestigious. Well, now my message today isn't about Harvard, but only comparison to what the world offers and what I believe God offers through his truth. In 2021, they did a survey of all students at Harvard, all the students at Harvard, and found out that 16% of the student body at Harvard are atheist. 32% are agnostic. If you do the math, almost half of those students who attend Harvard University are either atheists or agnostics. They study the Bible as an academic exercise, not as a religious exercise, not one that has deep value for your life. Now, I'm sure that's a broad statement. I'm sure there's some that, that do that. But the value of the Bible as the Word of God is lost on our most prestigious colleges and universities. Now, even here, though, that's not the way it used to be. It's not the way it used to be. Things have definitely changed since the founding of Harvard more than 300 years ago. You see, Harvard was founded in 1636. 1636. Their original charter says this. This is a statement from the 1636 original charter for Harvard University. It says, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his life. And studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Now that's an institution that began in 1636 that today almost half are either atheist or agnostic. The values and the principles, even taught from the beginning of many of the prestigious universities, are not found anymore. The charter clearly states that the purpose of the college was to educate young men for the ministry. There's a very important reason for that. The founders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, those that came over on the Mayflower, all had certain things in common. There were two groups on, that, on the Mayflower, the Separatists and the Puritans. The Separatists wanted to separate from the Church of England. Was that corrupt? The Puritans wanted to purify it. Well, the Puritans were the majority in the uh, colony, as it became known. And so they founded a college to provide new ministers to purify the Church of England. And they had very strict standards from the very beginning, and it was all about learning Scripture to apply in your life and to purify the church. And the charter clearly states that. And I've told this story before, but in the charter, the original charter uh, for Harvard University, there's a clause there because it is founded upon religion, at least that was the original. Uh, There's a clause there that states that any minister who lives within 40 miles of the city of Boston will have free library privileges at all the libraries at Harvard. And again, a true story, the, the, the town I lived in was called Uxbridge, Massachusetts, or is Uxbridge, Massachusetts. I don't think they've changed the name. But Uxbridge, Massachusetts is exactly 39 miles from Boston. 
So I went one day to the library at the, uh, the theological library, and I went up and talked to the person there, and I, I said, is this still true? I had a copy of the charter. She said, absolutely. And I said, well, I live in this town. She said, well, here's your library card. So I had full library privileges to the most prestigious theological library maybe in the world. But as time had gone on, those principles have been lost. As I said, the Puritans were the largest group, and they founded the city of Boston in 1630 and then Harvard in 1636. They had very strict rules at the college. Rules from, 18, uh, from 1636 read like this. Every scholar shall be called by his surname only until he's invested with at least his first degree. You not have any title until you've at least had one degree. And this one. And they shall honor their parents, magistrates, elders, tutors, and aged persons by being silent in their presence, except they be called on to answer. No gainsaying, showing all those laudable expressions of honor and reverence in their presence that are in use, as bowing before them, standing uncovered, or the like. Obviously, that's a very old rule that doesn't have any meaning for anyone today. Respect for your elders, respect for the people who teach you. Well, these are all values and principles that existed one time, even in this country, but have long since been lost. Today is a very different day, and Foundation Institute is, a very, is very different from the Harvard School of Divinity. You know, in practical fact, a school of divinity is to help or to train individuals for the ministry, uh, whereas a school of theology is to give them training in theology where they can become teachers or other administrators, as well as, of course, uh, uh, to become ministers. But the, there's a difference in the school of divinity as opposed to the school of theology. Harvard began as a school, and is still today, a school of divinity. But Foundation Institute is very different. Foundation Institute is very different. As a student, when you were accepted to FI more than nine months ago, we began with three assumptions about you. Maybe more, but at least three. Number one, that you believed in God. You're not an atheist. And number two, you believe that God is the true author of the Bible. And number three, that you were here to study that book. Not some textbook or other book, but that book. Over the course of nine months, you've been given a knowledge of the Bible that you really could not obtain anywhere else. I believe the reason you came to McKinney, Texas, was because you felt there was something important being offered, something important for the remainder of your life. I hope you found it, because I believe it is here, and here for the taking. Let's talk about the truth, the value of the truth, how it affects your life if you embrace it and how it will affect your life going forward. Let's turn to Acts chapter 3. You might think initially, well, that's an unusual scripture to begin a sermon in talking about the value of the truth. But I think it is an appropriate scripture. It's at a very interesting period of time in the history of the church. Let me set the, the context for this statement that Peter's going to make in Acts chapter 3. You know, the New Testament church was founded on the day of Pentecost, just a short while, probably only days before Peter uttered these words. 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost. Now, I want you to understand the magnitude of what happened. And put yourself in Jerusalem in 31 AD, 
According to historians, Jerusalem was a city of 40,000 people at that time. Now, granted, there were many more people that came during Passover, up to maybe a quarter of a million people. And there were probably crowds there for Pentecost. In fact, we know there were. But the city of Jerusalem was 40,000 people. 40,000 people. 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost. Now, if you took a city like Dallas today, which has 1.3 million uh, in population, consider the percentages, 3,000 out of 40,000. How many people would you have baptized on the day of Pentecost if it were in Dallas and it was the same percentage of people? And I'll do the math for you. It's 97,500 people would have been baptized in Dallas on the day of Pentecost. I think we would all agree that would have caught somebody's attention. That is something that doesn't happen really that often, if ever, to have that many people in one day. 97,500 people is equivalent, uh, 97,500 out of a 1.3 million people is the same as 3,000 out of 40,000. Keep in mind that these 3,000 people also had families. So maybe you're now up to 12,000 people in a city the the population was 40,000. All connected to this one event, baptism, on the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the New Testament church. My point is it didn't happen in secret. It wasn't hidden away somewhere. This was the topic, I can assure you, in the city of Jerusalem at that time. Everybody's watching now. What is this? How can you have a church outside the synagogue? How can you be separated in that sense from the temple, although they were still at the temple? Many questions were asked. Chapter 3 is on the heels of the day of Pentecost. Verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Verse 3, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have or what I do have I give you. Now, the gentleman who had been lame from his birth was healed. But Peter talked about giving him something. He said it's not material. It's not gold or silver. I'm not going to give you a house or a car or any of those things. But I'm giving you something of much greater value. In the name of Jesus Christ, he said, or Jesus Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, verse 7, and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The entire city is abuzz. No one can quite figure out what's going on. But in the middle of all this, Peter said, look, I, have, I don't have gold, I don't have silver. 
but what I have I will give to you. We find later on the term freely given is attached. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Jesus Christ in sending his disciples out to preach the gospel gave them this statement, which is very, very important when it comes to what Christ was offering, when it comes to what the church is to offer. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. And here it is. Freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. Now there are a couple of of things here that we need to take note of. It is given to you freely, but it doesn't end there. Freely you have been given, freely you should give. And I want to emphasize that as we go along as well. Not only is the truth given to us freely, it's not gold or silver, it's not a new car, it's not a new house, it's not any of those things, but it's more valuable than all of them. It's been given to you, and you are to do what? You are to give it freely. How do you do that? So look at uh, Acts chapter 8. In Acts the 8th chapter, I remember an individual a number of years ago, and I didn't agree with him then, and I don't agree with him now, that Acts chapter 8 is a statement that says that we as church members should go around on street corners and uh, get groups over to our house, and we should be preaching the gospel to them. We should, we should do that. That's what it means. Well, look at what it says, and then I'd like to read you a little bit more about it. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered, there's persecution now. We're only uh, four chapter, or, or five chapters later from Acts uh, 3. And uh, again, not a lot of time has passed, but there's a lot of persecution now upon the church. Once people have gotten over the shock of what happened, they're becoming very critical. They're beginning uh, to persecute the Christians. So what do they do? It says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Philip went down to Samaria. We have the multitudes uh, and, and all of the things that, that are happening. People are being scattered from Jerusalem. So did they go to some little uh, village and set up in the corner or in the village square and just begin preaching? Is that what this is all about? Uh, some would have you believe that, but I don't believe that is true. In Barnes' notes, I believe, we have a, a, a proper explanation of how this happened. Uh, Barnes writes this about Acts chapter 8, verse 4. It says, preaching the word, uh, Greek evangelizing or announcing the good news of the message of mercy or the word of God. This is not the usual word which is re- rendered as preach. It's a different Greek word used than the one for preach but means simply announcing the good news of salvation. There is no evidence, nor is there any probability that all these persons were ordained to preach. They were manifestly common Christians who were scattered by the persecution. And the meaning is that they communicated to their fellow men in conversation, wherever they met them, and probably in the synagogues where all Jews had a right to speak, the glad tidings that the Messiah had come. It is not said that they set themselves up for public teachers or that they administered baptism, or that they founded churches, but they proclaimed everywhere the news that a Savior had come. Their hearts were full of it. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And they made this truth known to all whom they met by what they said and by what they did. 
This was done by words and deeds. They were so filled with the enthusiasm, the truth of God, which was so different as they saw from what was taught in the synagogues, what was taught uh, commonly at that period of time and different ideas that were taught, the truth. And over the years, we've, we've made a lot of trips to different uh, parts of the world, which are very poor. Uh, we made a number of trips to Africa. We just came back from Kenya. And, and you see the, real, the, the poverty that exists there and how people need physical things. They certainly do. And we, we don't deny that. Uh, but we learned some difficult lessons over the years in some of these areas. Mr. Horchak and I made our first visit to Ghana in December of 1999. There were hundreds and hundreds of people that were there at that particular time. We met many of them during that period of time who had great material needs, great material needs. We realized over a period of time, it didn't come to you automatically, uh, not to judge anyone really, but to realize that when you need physical things so desperately, your attendance to what may appear to be a religious cause uh, is fine if it gains for you materially what you need. And there are those that have desperate, desperate needs. Over the years, you learned that many of those people were there for that very reason, that hoping that you could provide them something physical. The religion was not just secondary. It may have been third or fourth. It was the physical need that was there. Over the years, I've talked to other, other groups, other churches. Uh, over the years, I've talked to the Seventh-day Adventists. <clears throat> I was actually impressed back in 1996 when we had the opportunity to visit the Seventh-day Adventist World Headquarters. And we sat down and talked to the leadership there in Silver Spring, Maryland. And I asked them, because at that time, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists were the fastest-growing Christian church outside of the United States and the world. They were growing by hundreds of thousands and millions of people every single year. And I asked him, well, how do you do that? And they said, our, our mission <clears throat> is to go into an area. We don't build a church. We don't, uh, we don't talk all, well, we do talk about religion somewhat, but we build a hospital first. And we take care of all the medical needs of those in that area. Then we build a school. We take care of all the educational needs. Then we build a church. And when we do that, the church is full. We do it in that order because we know of the physical needs. Now, again, I'm not criticizing that. Uh, it's wonderful if, if you can go in and take care of the physical needs of some of these people who are, are actually desperate. But what does that say about the gospel and the truth and the purity of the truth? The easiest thing, and again, this is, this is my quote, to have a congregation in Africa is to offer physical things, whether it be food or money, and you can fill your churches. One of the great challenges for us in some of these parts of the world is, is it the truth? Someone is being called? Or is it such desperate physical needs? And it's often very, very difficult to know the difference. We do our very best to take care of the physical needs of those who have committed themselves and are part of this way of life and have accepted the truth and follow the truth. But we begin by saying gold and silver we do not have to give you. But what we have, we give to you freely. God's truth is the greatest gift you can give to any person. But when that person doesn't understand it, what have you accomplished? The biblical knowledge you have been given at FI is of greater value than anything you will come across in your life. Even if you live to be more than 100. That is really my message today.
number of years ago, back in the 1980s, I attended, I used to go to some of the, the bar conferences, Biblical Archaeological Review. It's a, it's a magazine, an organization. And every year, the weekend before uh, Thanksgiving, they conduct uh, conferences where they invite the, the leading theologians, the leading archaeologists from around the world to make presentations. And I, would, I went to several of them. I went to one in Boston one time. And in sitting around talking to the people that were there, they're all there for the same reason I was, to, to learn, to, to hear all of this. And they, they would ask about your church and who are you and all of that. And I would tell them. And then one day an individual asked me this question. He says, what is your praxis? And I had no clue what that word meant. What is your praxis? I thought, wow, what's he talking about? Well, we have churches, we have ministers. Oh, okay, so what is your praxis? Well, it bothered me greatly that I couldn't answer his question because I didn't know what the question was. Then I realized and discovered that the word praxis is actually the Greek word for acts. And in actually, the, in the Greek, the word acts is praxis of the apostles. You know, it's praxis. It's what, what, what do you do? What, you know, we, we know, you know, what you teach is one thing, but what do you do? What occupies your time? What is your work all about? So I'll, I'll never forget what the word praxis means. I'll always be able to answer that. But you realize our praxis or our work is very different from the rest of the world. It's not the same as the Baptists, the Methodists, the Catholics, or any other group that you can possibly name. But sometimes, and I've seen it in, in the church as well, sometimes people forget the fact that everything we do is driven by one principle. It's found in John chapter 6, verse 44. This drives our evangelistic efforts. This drives our work of the ministry. This, drive, this is the reason we publish magazines. This is the reason we do all that we do to make it available to people. But, John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Christ repeated this twice in this one section of Scripture. Our work is driven, is underpinned by this concept that no one can come unless the Father draw him. The truth that we teach, yes, it can be understood academically. Yes, you can teach a young person who grows up in the church about the Sabbath and about the holy days. And you can convince them from Scripture. You can academically provide it. But it requires the depth of a calling from God Almighty to become a part of that true body of Christ. I've said one of the easiest jobs that we have in the church is to preach the gospel. Because you see, we're not responsible for drawing people in. God must do that. We are responsible for making it available in a way they can understand it. God is the one who calls. You know, Christ is the Savior of the world. But if he came to save the world in 31 AD, he did a miserable job. He brought a message of repentance and belief. Repent from your sins and believe in the gospel. The world then and the world today has already rejected this knowledge. And we'll continue to reject it. Look at Hosea chapter 4, though. The truth embodies not just a message, but it embodies knowledge. In Hosea, there's a prophecy that as we certainly get to the end, that there will be something missing in the world. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. The lack of knowledge. There is so much more knowledge today about the Bible than was when I studied the Bible at Ambassador College. There's so much information available on the Internet to teach you. So how could we have a lack of knowledge? There's something basic and profound that's missing from the world today. It's either rejected or ignored in the world today. In the first class that I teach at Foundation Institute every year, I ask a simple question. Is it more important what you believe or what you do? We live in a, a world today that even the religious world today is, oh, well, you know, we can believe this, you can believe this, you can believe that. I mean, you can have any type of belief, but if you're a good person, we're okay with that. What you believe is less important today than I think any other time uh, that I can recall. Where you can believe literally, I mean, you can be an atheist and be a good person. Or you can believe in whatever you want to believe religiously. It's not important that it be biblical. But if you're a good person, again, don't get me wrong. I think we all want to see good people. People who are moral. Uh, people who are kind and merciful to others. We want to see that. That's a good thing. But let's not allow that to overshadow what we believe. The Bible identifies the truth and calls it the truth. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Christ said it as plainly as it can possibly be said. You must, you must worship God in spirit and in truth. You mean without the truth you could not be properly worshiping God? You must worship God in spirit and in truth. There is no question, but God places great value and importance on knowledge, on the truth. The purpose in Foundation Institute, since its very beginning, is to provide you with a complete biblical education, covering the entire Bible in the course of nine months. The time with each other, the time with the faculty, and some of the other classes, which obviously uh, teach different things, history of the church, principles of Christianity. They're all designed to help you with life, which requires you to use the knowledge. It all works together to give you a foundation for your future. Let's talk for a moment about how that works in your life, in my life. You know, there's been a book on the bestseller list, and I've noticed it for some time. It's always said, well, I'm, one day I'm going to check it out, find out what it's about. It's called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Uh, the book is about little things. You know, we often think, and, and I, I've noticed this over time, that there are life-changing moments, and we should be careful and watch for those and be prepared for those. I don't disagree with that. There are moments. I've met many people over the last 50 years who made decisions that destroyed their lives. Literally, you can make a decision or a series of decisions that could destroy your life. So there are those moments of you know, life-changing or life-destroying that you can make. But generally life, not just generally life as it is, is not composed of those life-changing moments every day. But it is composed of little things every day. So the book uh, teaches a little bit of a different philosophy. That success at anything in life requires attention to the small things. Attention to the small things. 
Hence the title, Atomic Habits. That ad- everything is made up of atoms. So therefore, these are the small things that make up who you are, that give you your identity. And of course, there are the life-changing moments that do come along. But the little things that you do every single day are important. You know, in nine months, as I said, here at Foundation Institute, you're given a foundation to build upon. Foundation to build upon. You make decisions or develop habits every day. When I went to Ambassador College, I have to acknowledge that even though growing up in the church, I did not study the Bible every day. I opened it on the Sabbath. I would occasionally look at it uh, during the period of time. When I went to Ambassador College, it not only was drilled into me, but I made it a habit to study the Bible. I made another habit to pray every single day. No excuse, no matter where I am, I can be way off somewhere else. I can pray every single day. Those were two habits that I made when I came to Ambassador College that I did not have before. And I've kept those habits all of these years. I want you to consider this. Foundation Institute. Every day you learn something about the Bible. So let's think about it this way. If you improved your knowledge of the Bible from your classes just 1% each day, 1% each day you improved your knowledge of the Bible, by the end of FI you would have increased 37 times the knowledge you had when you came for the Bible. Just 1% each day. That's the principle of the little things that make you who you are. Consider this as well. That if you have ice cubes in a very cold room, the temperature is 25 degrees. They're ice cubes. They're not going, they'll be ice cubes. The next day you turn it up to 26 degrees. There's still ice cubes, 27 degrees, still ice cubes, 28 degrees, 29 degrees, 30 degrees, 31 degrees. But when you turn it to 32 degrees, they begin to melt. That melting is because of that foundation that led to that moment when the temperature rose above 32 degrees. Another example is the bamboo plant. And I'm not that familiar with the bamboo plant, but a bamboo plant, you put a shoot in the ground, and it begins, first of all, to put down roots. And it has an extensive groundwork underneath it. I mean extensive groundwork of the root system of that plant. But it grows very little upwards. But then once that foundation, once that system is there, a bamboo can grow up to three feet per day. You know, the Guinness World Book of Records, three feet in one day. Within six weeks, that bamboo could be 90 feet tall. But it went nowhere, at least appeared to go nowhere, for weeks and maybe months until that foundation was there. It identifies the bamboo plant. Your FI education was like that. You built a foundation. You improved your knowledge each day. Before coming to FI, you may have picked uh, up the Bible every Sabbath or maybe, you know, a few times in between. Whether you liked it or not, and I hope you liked it, you picked up the Bible virtually every single day you were here. I hope you have a habit now when you leave here. I hope that's part of who you are. But now let me take just a few moments and talk about, well, what will you take with you from Foundation Institute? When a program is designed, we must ask ourselves, what should a participant take away from the program? Rather than asking them afterwards, you have your own ideas to what it should be. Here is an author, and that's an unknown author as far as I know, who said this. It says, life is short, 
Focus on what matters and let go what doesn't. Focus on what matters and let go what doesn't. Leaving FI, what really matters? Well, now, keep in mind, the overarching thing, of course, is we want you to take a relationship with God and build on that as well. So I'm going to put that one aside. What are you going to take away from FI specifically? Here are my three takeaways. Uh, first of all, your relationships, family and friends, bonding at, at Foundation Institute. I still have lifelong relationships from the days I attended Ambassador College. Secondarily, another takeaway is to be loved. To re receive love is an important part of life. God created our children needing to be loved from the day they were born. Many studies show clearly what happens to a child that does not receive this love. And the number three, to have a purpose for your life. This may be the most important of all. You can have relationships with your family, your friends, which is fulfilling in life, and you may have received the love that is so important for each of us. But if you don't have a purpose, you will never achieve the potential that God has given to each one of us. And what a waste. If you consider these three, first of all would be your relationships, your family, your friends. And again, I'm putting aside your relationship with God. That overarches everything. You leave here with hopefully a better relationship with God that you build upon all of your life. But that aside, your relationship with your friends and your family there are two commandments among the Ten Commandments that relate to the most basic of relationships. The fifth commandment, honor your parents, and the seventh commandment, shall not commit adultery. I can only assure you that no matter what Hollywood or anyone else tries to tell you, immorality, fornication, adultery are so destructive to relationships, it is a big deal. I'm not saying one cannot overcome but I am telling you, sometimes the hurt will never go away. You've gained friends while being here. I mentioned earlier that I, many of my good friends that I have today, of course, were gained over 40, 50 years ago. You know, when I came into the ministry in the 1970s, I had no clue that I would go through two very devastating divisions within the church. The truth was what drove us in 1995. I believe how that truth is applied was a part of 2010. But each time the thing that kept me going was the fact that I looked around and saw so many of my friends. Now my decision wasn't based upon what my friends did, but it certainly was comforting to know that my friends were there. In 1995, when I was forced to resign uh, from the Worldwide Church of God at that time, I was a regional pastor that included Texas. When the crisis exploded on the scene, we had 32 pastors in my region. 28 of them resigned over doctrinal changes. When I was forced to resign after the Passover uh, and the first day of Unleavened Bread, and I agreed to do that, my wife and I drove up to Colorado and spent our first service outside, of course, the Worldwide Church of God with the Horchaks in, at that time. To be there for that very first service was absolutely an incredible Occasion. It was very sad in many ways, but it was powerful as well as to those who stood beside you, who had the same common belief that you have and were willing to give up their jobs, their careers for that. Special relationships are formed during those times. Special relationships were formed while you were here. At least I hope they were. 
they will continue with you as you go into the future. The, the other area, the second area, was the importance of being loved. Again, I don't think we have to go to the scriptures. Mr. Armstrong explained it very clearly that love is outgoing concern. It's not something selfish. It's something you, uh, lo- you love others because, again, they love you as well. Uh, you love others even if they don't love you. But there's something important about that need. Christ told Peter so directly on three occasions, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. There's a depth of love that Christians should have that cannot be explored deep enough. And it's something that you take with you. You build it over time. You don't suddenly come to that. When you turned 12 years old, you didn't suddenly come to that. Or when you turned 18 or when you came to FI. But I hope and pray that during these nine months, that love grew deeper and was ingrained in you for those who are around you. And then, of course, the third one was uh, having a purpose in life. What if you were told today or you knew today that you would not be alive or your life would come to an end on May 13th, 2024? What would you do this next year? What would you do this next year? Forces, this forces you to identify what is most important to you. After your relationships and the need to be loved and to love, what would you do with your life, your time? What is your purpose? What is important to you for this next year? Keep in mind that your primary purpose is to speak the truth, to live the truth, and to become the best person you possibly can. Hopefully, it began here. Let's go to one more scripture, one final scripture, Matthew chapter 13. Christ gave several parables about the kingdom of God. This is the one that, again, I think we all remember it, remember it very well. But it says something to what I'm talking about today. Matthew 13, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Beautiful pearls. Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What if that pearl were free? What if that pearl had no physical cost to it? What if it was the truth? How do you treat that? Our goals at FI are pretty simple. We have the greatest treasure in the world. We don't sell it. We offer it free. Now, there was a cost. You had to come to McKinney. Uh, You had to pay your rent. At least I hope you paid your rent. If not, we're not giving you a diploma tomorrow. Uh, You know, you paid your rent. You had some costs involved. But you understand what I'm saying. What we offer is free. It's God's truth. Certainly didn't cost you the tuition at Harvard Divinity School, which is $60,000 a year. We didn't ask that you have a 1,500 SAT score, and I won't ask how many we would eliminate if that occurred. But we did ask that you come willing to learn. Improvements are only temporary until they become part of who you are or your identity. The goal is not to read a book. The goal is to become a reader. The goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to learn an instrument. The goal is to become a musician. And the goal of FI isn't to read the Bible. It is to make the Bible and what it teaches who you are, your identity. I believe, I give my opinion, you were a good class this year. I have not spoken to Dr. Levy or Mr. Johnson. They may have a different opinion, but my opinion is that you were a good class. I hope you'll go out now and build on the foundation. 
Take your relationships with you, your family, your friends, your FI instructors, fellow students. Keep them alive. We all became part of your life and your family for the last nine months. You laughed, you cried, you studied, and you worked together. You can never repeat the experience of the last nine months. You received love from those who care deeply about you. You gave love to those who were hurting or needed encouragement. You solidified your purpose in life wherever you go from here. To school, to home, to career, you have God's truth given to you. Focus on your purpose, which is to please God, not man. To live according to his law and to give that truth to others through your words and your deeds. There is no greater purpose on this earth today. Reflect on your nine months. The world has accepted the lie. Not just a lie, but the lie, as Paul writes in Romans. But you have been given the greatest gift one could ever be given. The truth, not just any truth, but the truth. Enjoy, appreciate, and build on it.